Hey boo hey, thank you for tuning in to Unapologetically Her. I'm your girl, Natalie Nadine. If you're searching for a safe space as a young black woman to help you own your truth and navigate the challenges of adulthood unapologetically, this is the show for you. Let's get into it. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Unapologetically Her. I'm your girl, Natalie Nadine. And for today's episode, I am so excited because it feels like one of those full circle moments again. I have pretty much like one of my favorite teachers from grade seven and eight, Miss Townsend. <laughs> like, for me, this is amazing. I know, right? <laughs> I still can't get into the whole thing of like calling her Lori. So if I switch back and forth, you know why? Like, I just feel like, you know, that little like 12, 13 year old be like, hey, Miss Townsend. And that you were like the cute, demure, shy, not really shy, but I guess that's exactly the the Natalie I remember, you know, hey, Miss Townsend. So um, I get it. I get that whole thing. It's hard to call us by our first names. We don't have first names. Do you? Teachers don't really have lives outside of the classroom. Live in the classroom, wake up, and then you're there again. Exactly. (laughs) Uh... So... Before we get into anything, tell the people who you are, what you do, how they can support you, run you a check. This is your time to promote. (laughs) I like that last part, run me a check. Okay, well, uh, as you mentioned, I have been a teacher, uh, middle school teacher for about 22 years, if my math is right. Um, And uh, most of that time was uh, spent at a little school in Scarborough. Um, where I met you. I don't even remember what year that would have been, but um, that's a big part of my identity and my 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 who and what I do. Um, but about two, three years ago, um, I listened to this little voice in my head that has been really there since the beginning of my teaching career, actually. Um, this voice that, you know, wanted to get into storytelling, um, in particular filmmaking. And so two or three years ago, um, when it was apparent that this um, documentary, my first feature documentary was uh, going to receive full funding, I was given the opportunity and the choice to leave teaching for a while. So I took a a leave of absence um, and now I'm in my second year of that leave and still not sure what I'm going to do come September, if I'm going to extend it, if I'm going to resign, if I'm going to go back to the classroom, but we'll get into all that. So teacher, filmmaker, daughter, partner, sister. Um, I'm a lot of things, but, you know, we'll probably get into some of those things as well, some of those other specifics. I love that. Now, for all everything that you do, where can people follow you? Um, on the gram, I'm just Lori Townsend. My last name has an H, T-O-W-N-S-H. Um, I think it's Lori underscore Townsend, actually. And Twitter, same thing, just my full name. You'll find me. Um, Instagram, I mean, TikToks. I just started. I'm laughing because I'm so brand new to TikTok. And uh, as I open it right now, and I'm like, what is my handle? Yeah, it's just Lori Townsend, my full name, L E U R I E, and then Townsend. <laughs> Welcome to the social media age. It's a, it's a fun place to be. Yeah. Oh, it is. It can be a monumental uh, time sucker, but I've also met some really amazing people and have reconnected with people like you. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think if we reconnected via social media or if we saw each other in real life first and then started following. I'm trying to remember now. 
I think it was social media first. And then we, and this is the full circle moment, you guys, because this was my teacher, grade seven and eight. So this was 2008 until 2010. Wow. And then we reconnected 12 years later in person at the Black Legacy Awards by following each other on social media. Mm -hmm. And now we're here on the podcast. Amazing. I love that. Right? Oh my God. This is is what a lot of us get into teaching for. It's, It's really about relationships and and the investment that you make in terms of your time and your energy and young people um and some half the time you don't even know when you're making an impact but the hope is there that you haven't i think it's a lot like parents um i'm not i don't have biological children but um you know you think you just hope you're not messing them up too much and you hope that you know you're doing the best you can um with what you've got and with teaching you don't always get a chance to to um acknowledge or you don't always get a chance to to know if you made an impact so you know it's it's always really special to have these full circle moments and there have been a few of them um over the years as i get older my former students are growing up and doing amazing things like you and it's so it's just it's it's so lovely it's one of the things i think i'll miss if i do decide to not go back uh, Mm -hmm. that i won't have that sort of through line you know with a bunch of kids Absolutely. And that's the thing. I think that's one thing teachers either don't realize that you can have such a strong impact years later, because we're talking right now 12 years later. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people when it comes to teaching, and especially because in the French immersion program, although you are a French immersion teacher, but in the French immersion program, we don't come across, unfortunately, come across a lot of Black teachers. Right. You're lucky if you get like the one or two in the school. Right. Like other than you, shout outs to, I know, Felicia Samuels. Mm-hmm. That was our other teacher, but that was it. Yeah. Prior to that, I had two more, my grade two teacher and then my gym teacher in elementary school. So when that we have teachers. like a lot. Right. And some people would be like, wait, what? That, that was it. Mm-hmm. Until I reached high school and there was about, again, maybe three more. Hmm. And the fact that you said that's a lot is a little troubling. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's all everyone sort of, you know, reflects on their own experience. I didn't have my first um, Black teacher until high school and turned out he was this geography teacher. He wasn't very happy in his life. It was a really bad experience. I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, he was he wasn't very kind. Um, and it wasn't an, it would have been it was another three years or so before I, I had a prof at university who was my like I would consider my first real black teacher um, all through elementary school I never had that or middle school so yeah it's I'm sure it depends obviously regional where you where you grew up but I mean I, I grew up in North York and it's when I look at my class photos um, mm-hmm. you'll see some of the class photos of classes I've taught. Um, a lot of my class photos from my youth looked a lot like that. They're just really, you know, United Nations, like North York, yeah. Toronto. Like you, you get so much um, diversity, and that was never reflected for me in the in the teaching staff. So, yeah. Well, this is actually the perfect segue into my first question because now, can you tell us some of the unique challenges and obstacles you faced in your career as a teacher, being a black woman? Yeah. Um, I mean, early on, I think, you know, being sort of tapped as the equity person, 
um, <laughs> the sort of steward of all things race related. Um, when you're starting out as a teacher, like you're 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 floundering. You're you're like everybody else trying to figure out who you are. Uh, taking in advice from from elders, from older teachers. I remember hearing the the, the rule, um, "Don't smile till Christmas." That was sort of like how a lot of the elder teachers used to think about classroom management. The "Don't smile mm-hmm. till Christmas" adage was about like not being too friendly because kids will take advantage of you and you'll you'll have chaos on your hands. So like I just remember like negotiating all these different ways of um, trying to figure out who I was going to be as a teacher. And then like having all these other sort of expectations and responsibilities around being a leader, um, a thought leader, a, a leader within the school when it came to things like equity, like that, it was, it's a lot, it's a lot to sort of put on the shoulders of, of a young teacher. And I think just being a, a, a black woman, oftentimes like, you know, there was nobody else who was going to be an advocate for the black kids in the school. I remember there being um, a, a bulletin board in the staff room that was supposed to be the equity board where like, you would post notifications that came in from the Ministry of Education, anything having to do with equity in the school. And it was expected that I was the, I just, just sort of fell into my hands. I'm not even sure if I volunteered. It was like, you know, who wants to do this? And I think my my principal at the time sort of like pushed me forward to to do it. So yeah, just that, that that's one way I sort of see, like I wasn't really given the time to, um, find my footing, you know, before I was sort of being expected to be the, the leader in an, in the area of equity, because you know, why, because I'm the one teacher of color, one of two on staff. Um, the other, I think the other thing that, you know, when you're, when you're in staff rooms, staff rooms are notoriously, they can be pretty, um, toxic places. It's, it's often where teachers go to, um, release, rant, uh, mm-hmm. you know, complain, uh, about, yeah, like in, and, and it's, I don't know, like you, you, I think like in any workplace, you come across individuals who have made up their minds about the kids of color in the building, or they've made up their minds of, about whatever. And again, you're in a position of having to call out Older staff members, oftentimes it's, you know, it's someone who's a, who's older than you. And um, it just, sometimes it became uncomfortable and you had to really have this like gift of discernment to understand when and how to speak up, um, you know, especially if you're starting to hear things that are just like, just not cool. Um, yeah. I remember like a while, a long time ago, there was um, a teacher who was kind of, um suspecting that she had been given um the balance was off in her classroom of students from a certain sort of problem neighborhood um Mm. versus student like she she felt like the balance was off and to sort of prove her point and to sort of like you know in her investigation she went and checked all the addresses and was like yeah see there that it's clear that you know my my student um ratio is off in terms of and you can use your imagination like the the neighborhood in question you know the high risk neighborhood would Mm -hmm. be predominantly kids like me who grew up just down the street in government housing like that that would have been you know primarily kids of color so um hearing things like that as a teacher you're just kind of like damn like the emotional 
I just remember thinking at that point, like, if that's how she, like, I can't imagine, I felt at that moment, I felt like I wanted to take every Black kid out of her class and bring them into my class. Because I was like, I can't imagine how that's manifesting. I can't imagine how that's seeping into the way she's looking at these kids, if she consi mm -hmm. considers them a liability um, just based on an address, you know, um, and considers them, that, you know, how can you teach? How can you teach a child if that's the way you, you, you feel and those are the judgments you're making? So uh, a lot of that kind of emotional burden as well is partly, is part of a unique challenge um, of being a teacher. Like, I want to save every single student. I want to be able to be there for them. Yeah. And I think what you were saying just now with that teacher, it's one thing as the teacher to see it with like your colleague, but something I don't think a lot of teachers notice, but as a student, you notice, you notice when the teacher treats you differently mm -hmm. based on the color of your skin. Or like you said, if they search the address to see where you come from. Like, yeah, like the address is going to give you, it, it, like, like it has anything to do with the human being standing in front of you. Um, and I mean, of course, there are going to be challenges associated with growing up in, in you know, lower economic, um, in, in, in struggling communities. I mean, I know we had our challenges growing up um, in, in government housing, um, but like school was supposed to feel like an oasis from from that like school is supposed yeah. to feel like a safe place where you could you know especially a school like ours where you know a decision was made early on that there would be uniforms this was uh, like almost unheard of in a public school back in the, in the time um yeah. back in the day where the parent council got together with the principal and said hey let's do uniforms because we want to kind of level the playing field we don't want kids comparing you know top, you know, designer jeans and shoes and well, shoes, I guess, was always um, going to be the, the, the different differentiator. But yeah, like, I, I felt like school was, it's supposed to be that sort of level playing ground, right? It's a place mm -hmm. where you come, and you should be able to be yourself and your address, your postal code shouldn't have any bearing on how you're treated or what kind of education you receive. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely that feeling of being very protective of students yeah. after hearing stuff like that, because behind a closed door, like, who knows what kind of messaging kids are getting um, from an educator like that. Uh, absolutely. And that's the thing. I feel like there's a lot of those where it kind of transcends. And it, it, I would say it goes into, like, adolescence, adulthood, because I, I always tell people this story. I had a teacher in elementary school where again, she looked at some of us a different way. Mm. I remember she tried to do everything to get me out of the French immersion program. Interesting. She told my mom, oh, I think she, you know, she has a hearing problem. You know, you have to take her for a hearing test. There's this, then that. They put me in an English class for a day to see if I would like that better than French. Really? And I'm just like, and I feel like that traumatized me to the point where I'm like, I'm not leaving the French program. And even if I wanted to, I made sure to stick it out just because it, it does leave trauma within the students. Mm -hmm. When we got to middle school, we had another homeroom teacher who, and this was in grade eight, where I don't know if she had something against some of us French immersions. And again, we kind of all fall under that certain list. Mm -hmm. So when we were in that split class, she treated us completely differently from her original class. Mm -hmm. So when we had, well, Madame Samuels, after she left, we got placed with this teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we were like the stepkids that she never wanted. Damn. Yeah. That's and it's like, you realize we feel your vibe. <laughs> right.
like <laughs> particularly teenagers like that age group they are so so connected so able to read uh, you see it when there's a supply teacher who comes in you can clock that supply teacher within seconds you know exactly what you can get away with like I think middle school students are masters at, at reading the vibe and getting a read oh, yeah. on a teacher. Um, and, and they'll tell you exactly how they're feeling or they'll show you exactly how they're feeling. So I, I believe that mm -hmm. like you, what you experienced, what you felt was real. Um, and whatever yeah. reason that teacher was just bugging. Wasn't was feeling us one bit. That was a lock squeak. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I can't remember. But now this point, so it's probably not important, but <laughs> we can talk about it. Like that. That's like an off-camera chat. Exactly. Name but names. This leads into the, the question for you where I'm like, how how does being a black female teacher now impact the students you teach and their perception of themselves and their potential? Mm. Because we're talking so much of the impact when we don't have that. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is you just feel as a student, you feel wanted, you feel desired, you feel like someone wants you there. And um, who's it? Toni Morrison, who talks about like, don't ever let a child, or maybe it was Maya Angelou, I'm going to have to check that. Don't ever let a child walk into a room and not be acknowledged. Like there, mm -hmm. there's something about like standing at the threshold of my classroom and welcoming students into my room that that just became something I did naturally but I, I I know that um I can just picture the students as they walked in like it just there's a sense of being welcome and and want and someone wants you to be there and that's huge when you are yeah. thinking about all the other ways young black kids are excluded or made to feel like they aren't wanted or like they're to be feared or they're to be shunned or they're to be ignored. Like that just showing up and desiring their presence is a huge act, I believe, in in um in love and and care. So I mean that that alone helps the student feel um safe. It helps student feel like they want to, like they can learn from you, they can share with you. Um, it, it, it changes everything. It changes the relationships um, with their fellow students. I know that in, in my class, because of the, what I try to nurture in terms of a safe place, that students interacted differently, um, even though they were moving around as a unit from class to class, um, I know that the dynamics were different in my class like a student that was a bully, you can, eh? Well, that's, I mean, and I didn't know that, but like a student who's like a, a bully um, in one class, th things change. And we know the magic of like the drama classroom. Um, that has a lot to do with it as well. Just sort of what it is that we are doing in that, in that space um, requires a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability. And so a lot of the times those dynamics were changed. And so kids felt um edified they felt built up they felt like they could be themselves and who they were um in fact in drama the the wilder more off the you know out of left field you are the better like that actually works in the drama space so there are all these different ways that i feel like being a teacher 
um, in the arts was was helpful to everybody, but then specifically to kids of color, it was a way of, it just felt like freedom. And, and I encouraged joy. And um, I was always aware also that like, I was an anomaly, like, like these students weren't necessarily seeing a lot of black female drama teachers who were, you know, crawling around on all fours, barking like a dog and like getting into the role plays and doing all these weird things with them. Like I realized that I was an anomaly and I was willing to be vulnerable. And I think that was um, for a lot of kids um, eye opening and just let them trust me more, you know? And now that you now that you said it, I'm like, no, that's true. Like now I'm having flashbacks of like school, the way you greeted us, like you said, mm-hmm. the way you're more interactive is not just like, okay, here's the assignment, now go. Right. Or I want to do this, but I don't have the time to show you my right. It was never that kind of No, thing. it couldn't be. It couldn't be. I had to get right in there. You know what's so funny? I don't know if you saw this video, but remember there was a, a film crew that came in our drama classroom the year you were in. I don't know if you remember this. I just came across it last week and it yeah. was really bright and really on the ball. I would have queued it up because um, it's on YouTube and it's Ooh. your class sitting on the carpet. I'm delivering a lesson from this play, The, uh, the Shape of a Girl. It's about a bully um, written by a Canadian playwright. I forget her name. And you're there and uh, Elijah and a whole bunch of other people yeah oh and there are moments captured where like you're sitting beside me there's a moment where i'm talking and sharing um some feedback and you're right there on the carpet beside me i will find it and i will send you the link oh, <laughs> please do i need to see oh my gosh yeah it's really it looks so awesome. like it, it was good for me to see because i don't often get to see how i am in the classroom and i'll never forget mm-hmm. that that year they came in to um to film that um it's very hands-on. You can't be a drama teacher. And like, even that, I mean, that day I was wearing heels, but I never wore heels. I knew that they were filming. So I, I tried to, I don't know, fem it up a little bit for the camera, <laughs> but I never wore heels. I got away with wearing, you know, I got away with wearing jeans and, and docks my whole career because I was the drama teacher. <laughs> that sounds like my kind of life. We ain't doing heels over here, so I'm with you. <laughs> Ah, I thought you, you strike me as someone who could, you know, know where I will pose for the camera and then I'll be like, okay, these are killing my feet. I need, I will walk barefoot before I take another step. I love that. Yeah, I gotta keep it real. <laughs> Sneakers, dogs, Uggs. I'm nice. <laughs> so, my next question for you is well, can you share your perspective? Like, we're talking about the lack of diversity um in the teaching profession and the importance in increasing representation because like you said from the time you were a student to when I was a student there wasn't a lot of black teachers Mm -hmm. but even for me I guess my generation it still doesn't seem like enough yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and you know I I think it probably starts it starts in teachers colleges it starts in those recruit in those those stages where people are you know young people are making decisions about whether they want to go to teachers college or are there any barriers back in the day it was just one year now it's two years um back in my day you could have your own classroom as soon as you like it's almost unheard of now for um a teacher uh to come out of teachers college and walk into a full-time like their own classroom um, and to have that kind of sustainability. Um, 
last time I checked, it was, you know, on average, they're waiting four or five years um, before they get a permanent contract. So, you know, like I remember talking to some young teachers who were like, um, you know, they, they tell us in teachers college just to get a job that's sort of teaching adjacent. So some of them are working part-time at Lululemon and others are, you know, EAing or working in a daycare, like, or doing nanny work, something that's related until they can finally get their, their own classroom. And I mean, that's, that's, if, if I'm 24 years old and, or whatever age you are when you're coming out of university, I guess younger than that. And I'm thinking about, you know, paying off my student loans and, and getting into a career that's going to make me happy. That's going to, you know, be sustainable. Um, that's a, that's a hard sell to go into a profession that is so intense, so demanding. And on top of it, you, you know, you might not even have like a full-time gig for another five years. You're going to still be hustling and, and doing things. I, I don't know if it's changed, but I mean that I'm going by, um, you know, sort of feedback I was getting and what I was seeing, five years ago, you know, five, six years ago. So I don't know if it's changed that much. It goes in cycles, you know, because at some point a wave of teachers retire and, you know, this, yeah. there has to be a way of replenishing. But um, so, yeah, just, I don't know if it's, if it's a career that um, is that alluring to, to young people anymore. Like it's, there's a lot that you have to kind of deal with. Um, I was talking to a um, 24 year old today and she was telling me that her cousin um, in the Caribbean, who's a teacher has been teaching for like three or four years. They're just like, them can't take it anymore. The kids, she's like the kids, they're just, they're not like they used to be or so. I don't know where she's getting, you know, what her, 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 um, sort of expectations were, but she's like, it's not worth it, man. It's like, sometimes you, yeah, it's, it's a tough profession. It's a tough profession. I think it's a tough sell to a lot of people. So what do you do? Pay them better. With oh, you get long summers. That used to be holidays. enough, I think, for a lot of people. You know, you don't always get people who are in it for the right reasons. Um, but I mean, yeah. that's still a great perk. Um, it's what allowed me to pursue filmmaking um, on the side because I was also, you know, I, I was teaching for a good five, six years before I took my leave, and and still making short films and and trying to you know, find my way in the industry. So, I mean, summers, definitely. I, I treated those sort of as my film school. Um, it's, it's still a big draw, but it's not, it can't, it's not enough. If you're, if you're miserable day in, day out, if you don't actually like kids, if you don't um, get excited by the idea of like transformative curriculum and, and how um, like sort of what we are really there for, which is to help, young people think critically um to to nurture curiosity like you have to have a love for that kind of thing and um i just i worry that yeah i worry that there's not enough maybe it's just bad pr but i don't know that there's enough to draw young vibrant i guess it's not saying young because it's it like, becomes a bit ageist as well like i i worked with a teacher who had a second career as a teacher, you know, he was an engineer before and he was older than me, but had less, you know, teaching experience. And so anyway, the point is you're asking about like the importance of um, having representation. Um, I don't know. I, maybe there needs just to be some, you know, long, hard conversations with pre-service teachers about 
the power of their presence and, and just how needed they are. Um, and it is a great profession. It is a great profession and you can have a really, you can have a really great life and um, feel like you're making a difference. So I don't know. At the same time, I'm, I'm on my way out, <laughs> but I, you know, that's after 22 years, like, you know, like I, yeah. I, I, I didn't even realize it would be that long. Oh yeah, ninety eight, ninety nine, and like I'm not counting these last two years that I've been off. So yeah, um, when COVID hit and I did a year of virtual school teaching, that was I think my twenty second year. So, um, you know, I was going to say I did my time, but that sounds bad too. It's not like I felt in those in that time I was very much um, happy and and aware that like I. I was doing something that felt natural to me and yeah. that I love to do. Um, and I was getting paid and had summers off. Like it was a good work life balance. You know, you can achieve a really good work life balance. I think as a teacher, as long as you don't take on too much, um, that's often a problem as well. Sometimes the real go getting teachers are the ones who are expected to do everything. They're coaching, they're running the clubs. They're burnout is a real thing. See, now that's good to know. I always told people, I'm like, if you want to go into teaching, and I'm happy I kind of did this, because at first I always thought that's what I was going to do. Be, I was going to be an elementary mm -hmm. school teacher. I was going to teach like the kindergartens in French. And then I always recommend people, one, keep in touch with some of your previous teachers. Two, go back and volunteer with them and see, is this something you see yourself doing every day? Great advice. So there was a teacher I had, she was my grade two teacher and she ended up, we were her last grade two class. And then she taught kindergarten until she retired about four-ish years ago, I think. Wow. And I would go back and volunteer with her almost for like an entire school year to the mm -hmm. point I got to know the kids. It's like I was her own like personal teaching assistant. And I'm like, I love you. <laughs> I love being back at this school. These kids are great and all, but I don't think I could do this every day. Mm. And I'm like, and that's the reality. And for some, like, yes, it is what they want to do. But like you said, you need to have a love for it. You need to have a passion. You need to like the kids. Yeah. You can't teach a child you don't like. Baldwin said something to that effect. I'm watching every great thought leader's quotes right now. But yeah, it was something to that effect. James Baldwin said, you can't teach a child you despise. Yeah. It's not. It like you said there's people who are getting into it for the wrong reasons and i think they're finally realizing that's not enough so if this is not for you do not waste your time nor the child's time right yeah, yeah. no you can do to, you can do a per irreparable damage it's it's not it's not child's play um mm -mm. unintended yeah like you you can do way too much damage um as a leader in that room for I used to say this to students all the time, like I spend more waking hours with you all than I do my own family, than I do my own mother. Um, and you spend more waking hours with me probably than you do with your own family, um, not counting weekends. And the, that time is sacred. It's also like you have to be aware um, as a teacher, you have to be aware of your power and your privilege and your impact um, on on kids. And you, you can't play around with them. No. Fifty years because you brought this up during the last question. We we're talking about your career in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. 
So what actually motivated you to consider a career change and what factors influenced this decision? Um, well, I think um, it's always been there. I wouldn't even call it a shift. Like I, when I first started, I remember reading um, in a teacher magazine. I always have it nearby. Of course, I can't find it now. Um, it's okay. I, in a teacher magazine, there was an article um, about Linda Schuyler. She's the um, creator of the Degrassi franchise. She was a grade eight or grade nine teacher before she created the kids of Degrassi Street and then, you know, all the other iterations of it after that. I remember reading the article and putting it in a plastic sleeve and, and just keeping it in my desk drawer. Um, this is back in 1998, 99, because I was just really intrigued um, by the ability of her to kind of pivot naturally into something that um, didn't feel too far from what she was doing in the classroom. So let me explain more. Like she had these grade eights. She's the kind of teacher that I think I was really trying to connect with them to really trying to see them as, you know, whole human beings with fears and, you know, questions and, and curiosities and, and um, triumphs and, and trials, but she had nothing to work with in terms of like, um, exterior like media she had nothing to show them she had nothing um to work with in the classroom and so she created it she wrote it she created this kids of degrassi street because she wanted it to reflect the students that she um that she was teaching and she used it as a teaching tool she used some of these early videos that she did on topics from like sex to you know stis she she used these um as teaching tools she had to create them herself because they didn't exist so i just remember being really inspired by that i was like I love that. I love the idea of using another skill set to continue to teach, to, con to continue to serve your students in a way, um, and to like just bring their authentic voice um, to reflect that in some form of media. At the time, when I started teaching, I had also met a writing mentor. He was a screenwriter. I met him while I was working summer camp in the States, and he became sort of my, like, um, I don't know if you remember that movie, Finding Forrester came out in, I want to say the early 90s, maybe. Um, Sean Connery plays this old reclusive writer who takes a young Black writer in under his um, under his wing, and he's, he's a really talented young writer. And anyway, they, they help each other, basically. Um, I, I, I found my own Forrester in, um, in this, this mentor of mine, Herb, Herb Gluck. And so I was starting my teaching career, but I was also thinking about this other thing that I love to do and this idea of telling stories on the screen and, um, you know, the, the types of conversations I was having with my, with my mentor at the time. So I kept that article, um, kept it with me. I never changed classrooms because I was at Macmillan for, <laughs> I was at that school for, you know, 20 something years. I think I, I left for two years to go teach in the States and I came right back. Um, my... Yeah. Yeah. I started there in 1998, 99. I went down to teach at a boarding school in the States. I had a one-year visa. And when that was up, yeah. I came back and I was like, I think I want to just be a writer. I think I want to struggle. I want to write. That was 2001. <laughs> and I learned very quickly after working as a hostess at the Hot House Cafe at the corner of church and uh, I want to say uh, front. 
for Wellington. Okay, yeah. Um, uh-huh. I worked there for maybe a couple months and I learned I didn't like struggle too much. I didn't want to struggle that much. Um, so I went back to Macmillan. There, there's level. Seriously. There's level. And then so Macmillan happened, this, the same school that I had left after teaching there for two years, um, needed uh, some yeah. supply teaching, needed a half-time teacher. So I went back and I still had a relationship with the principal who was still there. So I went back to that school, taught that year, half-time, and then was brought back on full-time and never looked back <laughs> and loved it. I mean, like, yeah, up until COVID was still like, you know, every single year, as you know, it's just grade seven, grade eight. So you get a new batch yeah. of like half your school changes every year. Um, the drama curriculum is always changing, always new, depending on who's in your classroom. And so, yeah, that kept me, kept me young, kept me fresh. And um, I loved it right up until, you know, I was out of the classroom and having to teach from this basement here, <laughs> which was okay as well. It had its own, it had its own, um, you know, things I liked about it, but not the same as being in the classroom. So, uh, yeah. How do you do drama? What's that? I, you know what? It's possible. It's not, it's not easy, but um, we, we did a couple sessions where we did, um, I don't know if you remember, one of the strategies in drama is town hall, where teachers, um, they call it hot seating, the teachers enroll, um, let's say as like a town leader. And um, you all agree that for the, the next five, 10 minutes, we're going to be tackling a problem in our community based on a story, usually use a story as a, as a jumping off um, place. Um, so yeah. the story introduces the conflict and then we decide you stop reading the story at a certain point, a critical point. And as a community, you've got to decide what we're going to do. And so we did that in the virtual sense. I was able to ask, you know, my eighth graders at the time from all over the city to turn on their cameras and um, they all played different roles. And it was a whole class improv on, on, on Zoom or Google, Google Classroom. It was actually quite fun, um, but not the same as doing that in person. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a minute, we like, are, are we still doing <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no trust falls, no, um, you know, these, these uh, icebreakers that require movement. That's, that's the stuff you lose. Which is another kind of like in my mind, back in my mind, I was like, do I really want to go back to the classroom if I can't teach the way I want? Because they were even after COVID, after we went back, there was still a lot of of the curriculum was being held back. You know, mm-hmm. teams didn't start right away. Um, anything that required breathing on each other or touching each other was still, you know, being held um, was was not happening. So, yeah, kind of grieved that um i'm sure everything's back to relatively um you know the way it was pre-covid now but um yeah i think of the question i hope i answered your question was about the pivot or the changing of careers i feel like i started teaching with the uh, idea that i would pull a linda schuyler and and do something that was complementary um to my teaching but in the film world and that's kind of what i'm doing First of all, that's amazing. The fact that both the teaching and the love for like film and everything goes that far mm. back. We're definitely true to this and not new to this. <laughs> yeah. But now it makes me think about like the mentorship because you said that you got a mentor, but how do you, and this, what advice would you give someone looking for a mentor? Because I feel like some people are very shy and they don't know, like, do I reach out? Like, how do I approach this person? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, you know, all the mentors I've had, um, well, yeah, in those earlier years, you know, my 20s and 30s, they were people I met um, because I was I just, like, I, I've always talked to strangers. I've always just, you know, like, I, I, I don't mind going to places by myself. That's one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're, when you travel by yourself, when you take yourself out on dates, when you go to a coffee shop and you're reading, you, you key into different types of people. Um, that's how I met yeah. Herb. That's how I've met um, a number of people who just sort of like, they're quietly going about their thing. And sometimes them doing their thing and you doing your thing, you know, you end up in the same space and you end up finding that you have something in common. Um, that, 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 that is important. I think it's important to look because part of being out on your own and traveling or taking yourself out on these sort of like solo dates, it's, it's about finding out who you are and that kind of introspection makes it possible for you to even like identify someone who would be good for you as a mentor. Like not all mentors and mentees are like, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a relationship and it has to work and you have, there has to be some compatibility. Um, it can't just be, Oh, I like what this person's doing. I, I want to, you know, extract and, and somehow be, you know, gain knowledge from what they're doing. I think it's a relationship at, at, at for it, It's like, dating it's it's a relationship and um you know without the romance and without the breakup hopefully um so that's part of it i think now just thinking about it like you've asked me the question i don't think i've ever thought about it but like it's always been when i travel alone or when i'm somewhere in a new place and i'm discovering and i'm open and i'm vulnerable because i'm new in this space you know what i mean that's often where i notice other people who are um in the space and you end up just having a conversation and, um, and, and, and oftentimes it grows from there. Um, lately or in the last few years, I've been a little bit more, um, strategic, I guess is the word about like selecting a mentor and that's, but it's still based on relationships. It's like, Hey, I know somebody, um, we have a mutual friend in common. Maybe you and I are, are friends and you know, somebody who is, um, you know, a teacher who's thinking about leaving the profession or pivoting to something else and you introduce us, you know, so it, it's, it's the strength of our relationship that makes that introduction meaningful. And, um, and you can be more intentional about that. So if you're looking for a mentor, it might not be someone like, it's really hard to just cold call someone. Like I, I would look for someone you might have in common and, and get that introduction happening. Um, and then fostering a relationship saying like, you know, do, would you mind, let, like, can we go out for coffee? And I, w- I would love to just hear about your journey, like being genuinely curious about somebody, um, you know, and, and I feel like that's part of like, you, you, as someone who I guess, get, you know, gets asked from time to time to be a mentor, um, the worst feeling is like, just feeling like someone's there to extract from you and it's not a it's not a, a flowing both ways relationship um i learned that mentorship is supposed to be two ways from um my friend danielle uh con de silva she founded photographers without borders and um actually she put out a a call um for mentees so it was part of a program that she was starting through her organization um that's the only sort of formalized way that I've gained a mentor because she put out a call and I applied and the 
application process involved uh, an interview. And I remember having this conversation with her and asking her, she was asking me what I could help contribute to the organization, as well as, you know, wondering if what, what she had to offer was something that I was needing. And, and there was this reciprocity that I think was really key in, in the way that Danielle ran that mentorship program. And it really worked. And now she's become like, you know, one of my closest friends. Um, but it started off as, you know, this sort of formalized program that she was offering. Um, but the key of the key part was this re reciprocal relationship between mentee and mentor. As a mentee, you're not coming empty handed. You are bringing something to the table, right? Even if it is just a fresh perspective on an industry that this person's been in forever, you know, um, that's that's golden. You know, you know, you have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the industry as a as a fresh person or a person who's new to it. Like that's that's valuable to a mentor, I think. Um, yeah. So I think mentees need to first know that they have that they're 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 not coming empty-handed. They actually are bringing something. They're not just in this extraction kind of thing. And um, be genuinely curious about people. Don't be you know if you are shy. Um, you know, one of the great ways to get over shyness is to start like taking yourself out, go out by yourself. I remember thinking that was like the hard, I used to look at people who were at movies by themselves and think, wow, how sad is that? Um, I could never do that. This is when I was much, much, much younger. And now yeah. it's like, oh my goodness. Like I love, love the other day I took myself out to the symphony to the TSL. It was so great. Ooh. Um, Beautiful. And of course, I ended up talking to people that I probably wouldn't have talked to if I had been with a group or with, you know, anyway. Yes. So that's a good way to get over shyness. It's also a good way to just, uh, like, you know, to self-care and, um, you know. See, the key word I took from you earlier was be intentional. Mm. And I think that's the thing, like you said, like a lot of people, like if they reach out, I feel like a lot of people kind of have that hidden agenda where it's like, I want a mentor, which means I just want to grab all the information mm. I can and just make a copy of what right. you do. And now I'm just going to be the next one. Right. And like, that's not how this No, works. not that wouldn't fulfill you anyway. Like that's part of like knowing who you are, spending time with yourself, knowing who you are. Maybe not what you want to do, but knowing who you are is part of the process of finding somebody who's going to truly know you, like a mentor sees yeah. you. Um, mm -hmm. And you don't want someone who just like understands your, 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 your CV. Like you want them to someone who is going to see you and invest in you, invest time and energy, um, even if it's for a prescribed amount of time someone who's going to do that and um i think that starts with the self-knowledge you have to know who you are um so that you're not out there just trying to you know replicate someone else's career yeah i and anyone mm -hmm. listening or watching today i hope you made some notes if you have to rewind back a couple seconds go ahead because these are <laughs> gems that you mm. would not normally get uh because whether you're shifting careers, whether you're starting something new, you're trying to figure out what to do next. Like I was shopping the other day at Scarborough Town Center and I was talking to the cashier at Spring. And we're talking about like, you know, working in retail. And I'm like, yeah, I used to work here for like eight and a half years. And she's like, oh, what? You used to work in the mall too? Oh my gosh. Like, how did you get through school? What did you do? Da, 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 da. And like, sometimes there's a lot of people, whether like a mentee or whatever the case may be, they want the answers to these questions. Mm -hmm. But again, like 
you really want to be that person be like, do you really genuinely want the answer? Or are you just be like, mm, let me just, you know, pick, choose and refuse. Mm. Cause that's not really how this works. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, if someone's willing to give you the real deal, like just to lay it all out and yeah, you have to be ready to hear that. Um, I, by the way, I worked at STC as well in retail for a few years. <laughs> Fairview Mall first, and then we moved out to Scarborough, and I worked uh, at Crabtree and Evelyn, the old lady soap store, um, for a long time. But I actually loved it. It was it was really fun. It was uh, it was nice to. It wasn't uh, it wasn't too crazy, you know. Just little ladies looking for their soaps and their hand creams. It was great. <laughs> See now that I could do, be like, there you go. <laughs> exactly. I love like, the older customers coming and giving their whole right? life story. I'm like, I still have seven hours. Go ahead. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Your manager's side eyeing you. You're like, no, I'm I'm customer service. Hello. Yeah. Makes the time. You go don't by. want this commitment. You don't want this paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so shifting gears for a little mm-hmm. bit. You actually I was going through your website and I realized you have released a handful of documentaries since 2008. Yeah. So what inspired you to pursue a career in documentary filmmaking and what drew you to that form of storytelling? Hmm. Yeah. And it's been a very small handful, like a baby hand handful um, of, of docs. Um, the first set of docs. Well, no, I mean, I guess you're maybe you're referring to like the series. I did a uh, human frequency street docs. These were like, I remember getting my first DSLR and it was a summer. So summer off, summer vacation, here we come. Um, but I wanted to use the time. Again, it was like sort of my self-curated film school um, experience. I wanted to exercise my storytelling muscle with this new DSLR. And I said, okay, if I can make a conversation with a stranger interesting to watch and like keep it under three minutes... I think that'll be a good exercise to work this storytelling muscle of mine, right? Can I create something that has a beginning, middle, and end that feels like a, you know, or feels like a thing by the end of it? So that's what I did. I I, I didn't have crew. I didn't have a cast. Um, so it was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to start interviewing strangers, people on the street. And that's what I did. I, I walked around um, different neighborhoods and I, I started with this premise um, I called it human frequency street docs because I believed that I wanted to believe that no matter the neighborhood in Toronto, the GTA, no matter the socioeconomic, no matter the, the, the gender or the, or the race, I believe that on some level, we're all kind of talking about the same thing. Like there's something in the in the zeitgeist or something in the, in the atmosphere that is connecting us all. And I wanted to prove that. So what I would do is I would go to like, I'd go to Regent park and just happen upon this guy who's fixing his car. And I remember this is one of the episodes it's called scar. It's this man Mm -hmm. from um, I think Sri Lanka who was talking about um, he's escaping war and being here with his family. And he's talking to me, obviously with permission, he's talking to me while fixing his car. Um, He's got a scar on his head from, some uh, a violent um, episode that he experienced in Sri Lanka. And, you know, he, he was talking about just wanting to get his family um, to safety. And through the conversation, I learned that, you know, um, 
he, he was also a storyteller. He was also a filmmaker and wasn't able to focus on that because he was now like a refugee, but like, you know, trying to figure his way out here in Canada. And then like half an hour later, I drove down to the annex and I started talking with this man and woman on a patio. And this white guy from Ireland or somewhere in Europe was talking about war, but from a completely different perspective. And so I was like, hmm, I can have these conversations kind of thematically connected but like, you know, a, a conversation about war from a man from Sri Lanka versus a guy, you know, a young guy from the UK, um, it's going to be different, but the same, you know? Um, and so that's what I did. I started sort of pairing up these conversations and, and putting them on my website and mapping them as well. It was in the day, the heyday of, um, who's the guy in New York who's doing the um, Humans of New York? Remember that uh, blog? Yeah, that was that was popping off at the time. And I was like, let me do this for video. And so that's how it became sort of like this documentary thing. I was a working that storytelling muscle. I had a new camera and I really wanted to use it. Um, I wanted to practice the art of conversation and interviewing and talking to strangers that came out of necessity. Cause I didn't have, you know, connection to the film world and didn't really think at the time of an idea that I wanted to, you know, um, pursue and um and then yeah just this natural sort of feeling of you know wanting to show how much more connected we are than different and so that's that came i think i did about 20 installments over a couple years um they exist online as human frequency street docs and then i also did in 2008 i did a, a doc about my hair again like a lot of us getting into filmmaking um turned the camera on ourselves for practical reasons you know because it's obviously we we have access to ourselves and um i was going through the process of going natural and it was something that meant a lot to me and was harder than i thought it was going to be so i i documented that and um that was actually my first doc um hair story a lock doc that i did um in 2007 2008 there yeah so that's on youtube as well um so yeah i think that's how i came into the documentary thing and then i my, my first um fiction dramatic um short was um the story that i did um about the hockey player and childhood sexual abuse in sport um i wrote that script adapted it from a feature um script that i'd written i was really like i can't i'm not gonna be able to make a feature film as my first film let me change this a little bit and make it a short. And that's what I did and cast um, Stefan James, another former student of mine um, who came through my drama classroom, just like you. Um, he he was gracious enough to, um, to participate in that short film. And then uh, I did Charlie with Alison Duke as executive producer, Charles Roach. Um, we did a series of um, docs about black um, human rights um, advocates warriors who had contributed to justice here in Toronto. And I, um, I did, I did the one on Charles Roach. And so, yeah, that's the handful of docs. And now here I am about to release my first feature documentary. Now, this is my last question for you. And this I think is like perfect, kind of like ending to everything you just said. And I always tell my guests, I want you to just sit back, relax, drop your shoulders. And this is when I really want you to just tell me, what does it mean to be unapologetically Lori? Hmm. I love when they do that. 
being unapologetically Lori means being able to look in the mirror and speak to myself the way I speak to my closest friend, to speak to myself the way I speak to uh, a struggling student in my class, to speak to myself with that same love and that same care and that same grace. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be unapologetically me. It means it means to defy all those negative voices in my head, um, all those learned patterns of thinking, um, to defy them unapologetically, to defy them and, and say, I'm going to love you, Lori, the way, um, according to your worth and your worth, you're worth a lot. Yes. And, and to really um, to quiet, not just to quiet those voices, to defy those voices that would say otherwise. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I'm not even going to give you a response. I'm going to end it right there. Thank you so much. Um, I am. Yeah, I'm just sitting here in. in awe of, yeah, this life we get to live and uh, the connections that this career has, <clears throat> it's making me emotional, but that's okay. I'm, I'm in awe of the connection that is possible just from two short years um, of knowing you, um, that we can be here. It's, it's really beautiful to me and, um, yeah, it just makes me feel very seen and and very connected still. And I'm just very grateful. These are tears of gratitude. I thank you for that. I think this is the first time I've ever had someone get so emotional on the show. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, the tears. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I tend to come off as tough sometimes, but no, my, my partner will tell you I cry at the drop of the hat. But it's it's usually, it's coming from a place of deep um, feeling. And, and I do feel deeply. And I'm just so glad that you asked me to do this and that we were able to, um, that we were able to get so deep in a relatively short a time. Yeah. Um, I hope you keep doing this. You. I'm using this as motivation right now. I'm about to cut like that one clip and be like, every time I feel like we're gonna slow down. Nope, press play. That's it. This is about to be my alarm. Get your little playlist <sighs> of uh, yes. I like that. It's a great idea. <laughs> oh. Now, before I let you go, promote yourself one more time. Let everyone know where they can find you, support you, okay. how they can watch your past work, all okay. of it. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at Lori dot Townsend. That's what I am on IG. L a u r i e dot t o w n s h e n d. Silent H for those of you wondering how to pronounce it. 
Um, that's me on Instagram, Lori Townsend on Twitter and TikTok. And I believe um, my website's lauritownsend.com. So I'm like, do people still go to websites um, where you'll see like connections, links to the human frequency street docs, which are on YouTube. You can also look me up on YouTube and, and find my channel just using my name. Um, Away with words, retitled. Um, can I say the new title here? Should I say the new title here? Just follow my thing. You're like, oh, do I get an exclusive? <laughs> let, let me let me hold off just in case. I mean, it would, it would really suck if I said this title and then like we get the cut and it's like, oh, sh no, we're not changing the title. It's away with words. That would suck. Um, I would feel so, so shamed because I'll just confuse people. So follow right now. Instagram away with words um, doc is also we have a we have an Instagram mm -hmm. account for the film and you'll you'll be able to know when we're premiering. Um, whether it's TIFF, whether it's Sundance next year, who knows, whatever the universe has in store for this film, it's going to be, um, amazing and, uh, like everything associated with this film so far in its own time. So, um, yeah, yeah you can just keep in touch with me through the socials and you'll know when things are aguan. I love it. And on that note, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you tune in to the next episode. Much love. Peace always. Miss Townsend, thank you so much once again. Oh my Let gosh. Hear you it was say my a name. pleasure. Say Lori. What's that? Oh. Lori. <laughs> there you go. It's, it feels <laughs> How did it feel? Lori Townsend, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Yeah. Miss Townsend, if you're nasty. <laughs> Shout outs to the team Janet, the Janet Jackson fans. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Bye, All right. Guys. Take care. That concludes another episode of Unapologetically Her. Thank you for listening. You can catch a new episode of my show every other Thursday on all streaming platforms and on my YouTube channel, Unapologetically Her Podcast. Please don't forget to download and leave a rating with a review letting me know what you think about the show. Most importantly, follow me on social media at unapologeticallyherpod on Instagram and at Natalie Nadine on TikTok and Twitter so you never miss an update, behind the scenes action, and more. Catch you ladies in the next episode.